Tune in weekly and listen to the Collateral Damage podcast, where Michael Wilson and Maureen Cavanaugh host a variety of special guests to discuss topics and available services that will help you learn about the impact that substance use has on our lives, our families, and on our communities nationwide. Episodes and listening information can be found at www.cdpodcast.com. You can also search for Collateral Damage Podcast on your favorite listening platforms or watch previous and future episodes on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Collateral Damage. Uh, This is Mike Wilson with my co-host, Maureen Cavanaugh, and we have a special guest today, Richard Zombeck. Thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. I understand that you have, um, you're currently employed as a uh, addictions recovery coach and a peer support supervisor. And um, this is, uh, how long have you been doing this? Uh, this, the, the, the whole thing or, or? Well, the addiction recovery coach part. I think that's. So I started with Bridgewell and Project Cope um, okay. in 2016, I want to say. Okay. It might have been a little earlier, and that was uh, responding to, it was on call 24 hours, responding to calls in the Lynn Union Hospital emergency room. Okay. And so, not, I mean, recovery coaching's really only gotten uh, a lot of uh, um, recognition over the last five years since it's uh, been brought into Massachusetts, right? Recognition, yeah. Yeah. I know I mean, people been, have been doing been, it for been a while. around for, for a long time, but it's, right. it's only really just kind of taken off as the new shiny object in the medical community. Um, I think that would surprise a lot of people. Don't you, don't you, that it's been around for a while? Mm-hmm. Well, it's been around since the 1800s. Um, and yeah. And Will, William White, who's kind of like the, you know, the godfather of the recovery coach movement um, tracks it back as far as, you know, uh, early native Americans. I mean, wow. well, I mean, it, but, helping other people get through a crisis is nothing new. Right. Mm-hmm. Right just because you put a label on it doesn't mean it hasn't existed for, you know, eons. Right. So, um, yeah, but in its current iteration, uh, it's probably been about five years. Okay. And they've done quite a bit in five years. I mean, as you said, it was the new shiny object. I I know that, uh, when it first came around, it was hospitals wanted them. Uh, everybody wanted them. Uh, and, and now I guess it's, or at least I'll just give you my experience. So I recently went through and did the, um, uh, the training, uh, for, uh, the first 30 hours, as well as the supervision training and then the training trainer, trainer, POT training of the trainer. Training of the and, trainer. uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, just, just learning about the program and what it does. And the one thing that I keep hearing across the board is the, um, just the confusion maybe on the front end about what they're supposed to be there for, you know, the individual, what, what is their role on the front end? Um, and that's why I'm glad we have you here today. So you can maybe tell us a little bit about your role on the front end, because I know even the programs that hire people don't necessarily know where they should be. Well, yeah. And I may not make it any less confusing for you. So. <laughs> well, um, we got to ask. So, uh, well, what's, what's your question? What is it that I do or what is it that we do or what, what is we- the role of a recovery coach? So this again, really depends on who you talk to, right? Mm-hmm. You could have, you could have a different recovery coach on here and, um, what's the, what's the most common one that always comes up? Uh, we remove barriers to recovery, mm-hmm. right? Something like that, which mm-hmm. to me is just what, sure, whatever. Yep. Um, no, I mean, honestly, um, so one of the, one of the reasons why I think this is relevant, why it's important. And, um, I don't want to say for, I don't want to say why it works. Um, but I'm 
going to just for the sake of argument. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I think it's effective is so for the last 40 years, let's say we've been, we started with a model that was very similar to this, right? Mm-hmm. People who are helping other people get through recovery, um, address their addiction, address their alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And then we threw a bunch of regulations and degrees and letters behind people's names and uh, gave them quote unquote answers to the issues that we're addressing. Right. And what we have now with people, let's say people like me, right? I'm a little over 12 years in recovery. And um, typically what happens is <clears throat> you come into a hospital, you ask for help and you have something done to you, right? Yeah. So you come in asking for help and the clinical and medical staff do something to you. Right. You have to go here. You have to get this. You need this prescription. This is how you're going to do it, right? The, the recovery coach model, at least the way that I see it, is more of a relationship of mutuality. Okay. Right? Like, what do you want to do and how can I help you get there? Mm-hmm. Right? So there are three basic components to being effective, I think, in treating anyone, right? Because we're dealing with human beings, right? And um, compassion, pragmatism, and altruism mm-hmm. are probably the three main points that are helpful and necessary uh, in doing this. And compassion is probably the most interesting because the real definition of compassion is wanting to ease someone's suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't say anything about fixing someone. Right. It's just easing someone's suffering, right? And addicts and alcoholics, despite what most people think, are suffering, right? And we end up in the, in the emergency room and we're a pain in everyone's rear end. <laughs> well, I mean, we're definitely, we're, a lot of it is a repeat, you know, we're showing up repeatedly um, to the same ER too. Yeah, but here's the thing, right? And I, I've done Schwartz rounds and I can explain that if you want, but mm-hmm. I've, I've done a few Schwartz rounds with Mark Kennard, who is the executive director of Project COPE and Dr. Har- Har- Harvey Zarin. Um, and Schwartz rounds are, are basically, they were put together as a way to uh, explain or demonstrate to the clinical and medical staff what a particular person is suffering from, right? So they'll do mm-hmm. Schwartz rounds on cancer patients, on diabetics, on, and in our case, of course, it was addicts and alcoholics, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a voluntary thing and it's kind of like the Vegas rules, right? What, what stays here, what happens here stays here. And people can ask any kind of questions they want. And there are SEUs and CEUs, which are credits for continuing licensure and stuff like that, right? And nurses and doctors come and, you know, we would talk to them about this and, and they would ask us questions. And the, the example that I always give is of my mother. And I'm really glad that she doesn't know how to listen to podcasts. <laughs> but my mother is 81 years old and French, like grew up in Lyon during Nazi occupation French, right? Wow. Not like, you know, we were French, you know, three <laughs> generations ago. She's French. And she pretty much embodies everything we hate about the French. she's insane and so and and strong and you know just you know right and she's a diabetic and she's been a diabetic since she's 30 years old and she cannot control her blood sugar she just Mm. can't she spikes she goes down she's in the er she's calling her doctor and she's a horrible patient to have right and what i tell people is that they would generally want her thrown out of the emergency room Mm. right 
But the next diabetic that walks in, they're not going to go, oh, here's another one of these effing diabetics. Right. Right. But that's what happens to us. Right. We're immediately treated like derelicts. Well, I see them as all the same. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Precisely. Right. So we end up in the hallway. We end up unmedicated. And that's the big surprise. Oh, we gave him a bed and we let him lay there for three hours. And yeah, but his blood alcohol level was 400. Mm-hmm. And at 200, you are not, you're not going to talk to him until he's under 100. Meanwhile, you're not giving him anything to ease the pain or the mental anguish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I'm sitting there and my blood alcohol, when I was drinking, dropped below 300 or 200, which was my baseline, right? I knew I was at the risk of a seizure. Mm-hmm. I start shaking. No one's giving me anything. I'm going to hit the nearest liquor store I can. Right? Run out, yeah. So it's like, well, you know, well, you deserve to suffer because you did this to yourself and we're just going to leave you there and screw you. Mm-hmm. And then, well, I don't know why you left. let me tell you why yep so i don't know if that answered your question probably not but well i mean it did it sounds like you know that person on the front lines is is uh supplementing you know maybe that that human element that the staff kind of get burnt out on that or or maybe they're just not capable or qualified to do i mean you're going to the er and you're going to get a uh more of a I don't know what you call it, like a triage response to your issues. You come in there with a problem, we're going to get to it, but that the coach actually can step in and, and be to, that to, person. Well, yeah, to advocate and to support and to, um, to, to assist. And you're right, it takes a lot of heat off of the emergency room staff mm-hmm. for us to be there because then they don't, they don't, this sounds a little cruel, but then they don't have to deal with that person and we can, right? So to go back to your original question mm-hmm. is, We've been doing things to people, and I'm going to paraphrase a guest that I had on my show uh, a little bit, because this is how I see my job, and I thought that explanation was probably the best, is my, I come at it with a fundamental belief that you internally know what's best for you, mm-hmm. and my job is to help you tap into that. Okay. Okay. Irregardless of what I think worked for me and irregardless of what I think will work for you. Mm -hmm. It's to help, help you get to where you think you need to be regardless of what me or anyone else thinks needs to happen to you. Right. Right. So I'll give you an example. So if you come to me and you, you've been drinking a handle of vodka a day and you're in the emergency room or you've been referred to me by a social worker or by a primary care physician and you say, Hey Richard, you know, I, I, I don't really think I have a problem. I'd like to slow down. My response is going to be, okay, let's try that, but hold on to my card and call me when you're in the emergency room because that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, try not to die. Right. But we're going to find this out together. Right. So it's an exploratory process. Well, yeah. To, to a degree. Well, to help them find what, you know, what's you know, to tap into that thing that they innately know they're supposed to do. I imagine that person has been told before and probably knows they they need to stop, but they want to try slowing down first, right? Yeah. And I've, known, to, I've known more. How long have you and I known each other, Maureen? Probably since 2016. Yeah. And Maureen knows probably just as well as anyone that I don't like being told what to do. So. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, so, I don't think I don't think anybody does. No. Yeah, some people do, but 
generally alcoholics and addicts or particularly if I'm, I'm in the throes of a, of a good run. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You could, you could have told me over and over and over again that I'm, I'm going to die. I had a doctor that did that stuck Mm -hmm. with me, by the way, that's one of the conversations that stuck with me for a really long time. And that's what this model is based on, right? There's going to be that one conversation that you're going to have that's going to stick with you and may not hit you for another year, two years, three years, five years, and it may never, but something is going to happen along the line mm-hmm. or not. I mean, that's the thing, right? There's always that, there's always that end of the sentence caveat. That's like, you know, this, this, and this, and this is, is going to, is going to happen or not. Mm-hmm. And that's the hardest part about it. Right. Is that we're, we're not, I'm not here to fix people because I can't. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. All I can do is offer, you know, like they say in AA, my experience, strength, and hope, and some sort of guidance and resources. So, you know, one of the big questions that comes up and has come up also on the recovery coach commission was what's the difference between a sponsor and a, and a recovery coach, right? And my skepticism and speculation is always, well, that question comes up with, because why should we pay you when there are perfectly good sponsors out there? Mm-hmm. Right. And <clears throat> sponsorship, I think, is more prescriptive. It's it's not up to you. you yeah, it's do <laughs> do do what I do. Right. If you want yep. what I have, do what I do. Yep. Right. And the other big difference is, too, is that particularly in our case um, here at Partners is I have the entire force of the organization for which I work behind me. Mm-hmm. which means if I need to, I can call on a social worker. I can call on a therapist. I can yep. call on a, on a primary care physician. I can call on a doctor. I can help them get insurance. I can help them get housing. I can help them, you know, there's a slew of resources that are available to me <clears throat> in an organization like this. Right. And where I'm very fortunate is that they've pretty much allowed me to do what I need to do. Which is huge. Which I feel very fortunate about. Yeah. You know, I run into this in my office all the time. I was working with a gentleman last night and, you know, it came up that, you know, we were talking about his efforts to, to try to do um, the recovery plan based on what he believed he needed. That's where we started, you know, kind of meeting him where he was at. It was, you know, we sat down and had the conversation. You've tried this, you've done that. Um, you know, what would you like to do to try to address this? And he said, well, I'd like to talk to a person and I'd like to do this while I'm working. I'd like to do it from home. I'd like to do all these things. And it was exploratory. Well, let's try that. Let's see what happens. And, you know, obviously if I was the architect of your treatment plan, I might recommend something different, but let's start here. And we worked through it. And, you know, what ends up happening is there's struggles, the struggles along the way, there's risk, you know, um, getting involved at that level and saying, let's try that thing that you're comfortable with. And I think as a professional, I always have that fear that I'm going to be recommending, you know, that we try something that I've seen a lot of other people not survive, Man, you know, disaster, yeah. yeah. And it may end a disaster. And I mean, the best I can do is warn them. Right. Well, and it's like, you know, it's fentanyl or heroin or any kind of opioids. It's like, I just, you know, they, people have to be reminded that it's really only a matter of time before you get a hot bag. Right. You know? And what are you going to do? Right. So there's harm reduction. There's, you know, caution. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, there's not always abstinence and cold turkey. Mm -hmm. And some people just don't tolerate it. Right. And so it is it is difficult. It's a it's a hard and, you know, 
the stuff that Maureen does with Magnolia and supporting parents and family and, and stuff like that, that's, that I think is, is the hard work Mm -hmm. because, you know, I had heart surgery about a year after I got sober. Wow. And, um, I had a valve that needed repaired. It wasn't any damage I had done from, um, years of drinking and smoking. It was, it was a genetic issue, but you know, people were looking at me like, you know, my, um, woman who was my wife at the time, my mother, and they were like, aren't you worried? I'm like, no, I'm not worried. Why would I be worried? Well, I mean, something could happen. It's like, yeah, but so what? I'm gone. Mm-hmm. It's the rest of you that I have to suffer with, with my loss. <laughs> I'll let you guys be worried for me. <laughs> exactly. So, so the, the families and the stuff that you guys talk about and that Maureen is involved in, that's, that's the real hard stuff because it's like how, you know, I would look at my parents and, and the people that were around me who, you know, had no idea why I was doing what I was doing to myself. Mm-hmm. Right. And most of the time, what they didn't understand, most of the time, what they didn't understand is that I didn't either. You know, is I, I knew I was on a road to destruction and I just, I couldn't stop. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a conscious choice. It was, right. it was survival. It was the only way that I could survive. I, I was always surprised when my family would come and ask me why. Like, why do you keep doing this? And I was like, I, I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I would just start picking things out of thin air or maybe because you guys got divorced when I was a child or maybe yeah. this or maybe that. Like it was, and I was just grabbing things out of thin air and, and you know, manifesting, like creating them. these are the reasons. And I had no idea. Right. I had no reason to drink the way that I did. No. I had absolutely no reason. I love how you explain that whole process of walking through this with someone, because I think that too many people think that they're going to bring somebody in who's going to fix everything. Mm-hmm. You know, or that this part of being a recovery coach is, is fixing the other person. And that, that never works. That never works. You're not going to say something and no one's really going to say something. You may say it in a different way. It may stick with you like you're, but no one's going to say, have some brilliant thing that they're going to say. And then the person's going to say, Oh, you're right. I never thought of it like that. I think I'll stop. Right. It's, it's that process of walking through the, um, the decision-making, the poor decision-making with someone and being there for them, regardless of what their choice is <clears throat> and just trying to, re- you know, repair, repair, repair. And then until they, I think, finally get to the other end of it, hopefully get to the other end of it. Right. And one of the more unpopular comments that I've made and been chastised for, and you're going to probably chastise me for it, Maureen, too, is that I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm not the junkie whisperer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was just actually thinking that right before you said that. I was like, there is no. Maureen's face. No, it is. Like, oh, she likes that heart. word. I hate she that, loves that word. word. <laughs> oh, come on. She's, she's warming up to it. Oh, my God. But there's no, like, there's no Tony Robbins guru of addiction that, you know, is going to be able to, you know, whisper in your ear and to, like you said, the, the junkie whisper can, and tell you what to do. But I like the idea of, you know, you got this, you got this small window of opportunity at a hospital, at an emergency room, at a facility where, you know, you may get to see somebody just for a short period of time post overdose, or you may get to see them, um, you know, during an admission where they're coming in and there's some willingness, maybe some, some contemplation about change. And, uh, you know, you may get to, you may get to say something or share an experience as a coach that might not change them at that moment. That might not be the, the reason that they do the thing that day. Um, but it might be, as you said, that doctor's statement that stuck with you and it might be the thing that helps them down the road. Uh, yeah, well, and it's interesting that you bring that up, right? Because I was at a meeting and 
it was you know clinicians and and recovery the recovery coach program and we were talking to a lot of doctors right mm -hmm. and the the clinical side of it is like oh you know we just we love working with this population and they're blah, blah, blah. and you know we see people at their worst and this is what we like to do and it's really when they're at their worst and it's like i have a i have a huge problem with that i have a huge problem with that because here's the thing right is when someone is in either the emergency room or has approached their primary care physician or has taken the step to go to the, so all of our primary care facilities have a social worker embedded in the office, okay. right? So typically the way that it works for the referral from there is that they see the PCP and then they're referred to the social worker and then the social worker refers to us, right? So it's kind of a lukewarm handoff. Mm -hmm. um, the emergency room and the inpatient floors are, um, <clears throat> are a little bit different and incidentally just as a sidebar there are something like 50 percent of people who admitted to the emergency room that are suffering from a substance use disorder wow. right? they're, not, they're not coming in for that but they do have some sort of substance use we're i mean we're a, a, an intoxicated society mm -hmm. and also if you consider that worldwide we consume in this country 80 percent of the pain medication in the world mm -hmm. right um <clears throat> we're an intoxicated society so to get back to the original point, it's like we see people at, at their worst. No, we don't. We see people at their best, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yes, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, they're at their worst, but they're at their best because they're there, mm. right? That's when they're, that's when they're available. That's when they're reachable. That's when you see the tear, right? When you can sit down with someone and go, so how are you doing? And they go, eh, and then you go, no, but how are you really doing? Mm -hmm. And you just pause right? There will, in most cases, inevitably be tears. Mm -hmm. right? And when that happens, that's the humanity coming out, right? right? People see us as, as, as subhuman, as inhuman. Why are you doing this? And the reason that I, the reason I did it was because I was super sensitive and I was ill-equipped to deal with life on life's terms. Mm -hmm. And alcohol helped that. And I see that as a commonality amongst alcoholics and addicts that you can you can treat me like a dirtbag all you want because nothing you're going to do to me is going to be worse than what I've already done to myself, right? Either emotionally, mentally, physically, whatever. So call me all the names you want when I'm sitting in the ED on a gurney and you think you're treating me like a piece of garbage. Mm -hmm. I've, I've done worse than that to myself, so you're not hurting me. But if you show me a little bit of compassion and kindness, mm -hmm. that's going to disarm me because I don't awesome. know how to deal with that. Yeah. And that, that hurts. Right. I mean, even now I get goosebumps thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that's that's the point where you reach someone, someone's humanness, someone's ability to change, someone's ability to say, you know what, I really can't. That's the spiritual awakening. Right. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not talking about any kind of belief in anything in particular. My definition of spirituality is is maybe. A little less woo woo than most people, but. When, when you can, I mean, my definition is the, it's, it's simply the ability to, to deal in the present moment, regardless of what's happening around you, right? That okay. to me is being spiritual, right? And a spiritual awakening is as simple as, yeah, I really can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. I need help, right? And I don't know that I developed a real will to live until I was about five years sober, but there was a point where it was like, I need to do something because I can't keep doing this. This isn't mm -hmm. working for me anymore, right? And getting to that point, right? To say that, that that's when people are at their worst, 
I, I think is a little myopic. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't like to use the word worst. I mean, I would definitely say that, um, you know, I'm a, I'm an interventionist, so I, I bump into people on their darkest days, um, you know, and, and show them light. And I think that's, it's not that they're, they're worst. I mean, they've probably been worse than when I meet them, but it's one of their darker days because everything's coming to a head for them, you know, and, and maybe the right. same could be said popping into the ER, you know, maybe everything's coming to a head. That's why I'm here. I'm looking for light. I'm looking for relief. I'm looking for, um, you know, something other than what I've been doing up to this point. And, you know, as a, as a coach or as that first point of contact or as that compassionate uh, individual that, that might be able to, um, uh, you know, motivate someone to have that spiritual experience. Um, I think that's a, that's a huge role. I think that's something that uh, is a gift for a lot of people in recovery that get to do that, that maybe wouldn't be out sponsoring somebody, but now they're employed and they have the ability to be that, that first point of human contact. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I, I, I see a lot is the, uh, and I, I don't know if it's just people don't have the experience or they don't understand why. Um, but you know, w- when we talk about the overdoses and people ending up in the ER and then they come out uh, or they come back, they're brought back, you know, be an Narcan, um, and they're brought back from the overdose that a lot of people who don't understand this illness think that that's, that, that, that should be the time that you sit with them post overdose. And like, so now that this happened to you, right, you should want to get well. And, you know, you just made a good point earlier is that, you know, it doesn't happen to you. It happens to the family and, you know, the overdose doesn't really happen to the person either. I mean, they don't usually remember it. It didn't, it wasn't their experience. It wasn't their trauma. They don't remember the, the ambulance ride or the EMTs pumping on their chest or the Narcan or the crying family members or the desperate tears and fear that surrounded them. And, um, you know, so when they, when they are brought back, they're not brought back to, Oh my God, I can't believe I did this. They're brought back to, Oh my God, I'm really sick. This is uncomfortable. I need something and I need to get high and you seem to be in my way. So could you move? Is right. more the the attitude that they come back with, and that's shocking to people. And I think it's because they don't. I just saved your life. Understand. How are you yeah. so ungrateful? <laughs> I like, can't believe you don't want treatment. <laughs> you killed my buzz, yeah. and I'm yeah. I'm yeah. kicking like right now. Yeah, you know, that's, and it's that's what's happening. I mean, I've seen people brought back from gray and blue skin, um, and they're like, "What do you mean? I was just sleeping." And I'm like, "No, you were dead. You 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 were gone. You were brought back." And they're like, "No, you just need to you know wait a little longer next time." And, uh, you know, I would have been fine. Yeah. And so, I mean, it doesn't, definitely doesn't happen to them. And, and you're right. The, the, the families are the ones that feel the need for change at that moment, oftentimes more than the individual who has overdosed. Uh, but it is still a good point of contact. It is still good to have somebody there that can attempt to reach in and talk to the, the, the person that's inside and talk to them like a person instead of that look of disdain that the professional yeah. might have. Like, oh, another one. I can't believe you're back or you know, what you're really, like you just said, you're not grateful <laughs> that right. I just brought you back. Yeah, well, exactly. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my, my own, uh, I'll make it brief, but I, the last time I drank, I was basically on a two week tear because I was left to my own devices at home alone. Mm-hmm. And I was taken to the emergency room and the next morning my esophagus ruptured and I had a 2% chance of living and I was in ICU for 10 days and they got me back together. They, you know, and I ended up in, you know, upstairs and, you know, the regular hospital room and stuff. And I still didn't think, I don't even think I was quite done. I don't think I was ready to do anything about this. I just thought I'll go home. I'll slow down. I'll be fine. I'll be okay on my own. And my parents who were snowbirds between Maine and Florida um, flew in. I was 43 years old at the time. And my 
dad's father was uh, an alcoholic and had a lot of issues around that. And I also got this look of disgust from him, mm. just total disgust, particularly when I was, when I was hammered. And, um, and I was prepared for that in the hospital. I was completely ready for that look and to, to be chastised and, and just this total disappointment. And the look on his face was really just of love. You know, I'm the, I'm the oldest of two kids. I was the first one mm -hmm. and he was concerned. He cared. And I think it's the first time, maybe not the first time, but it's one of the, one of the times that I realized that, that he really did love me. And I've never forgotten that. Mm. And that alone, um, my mother telling me that I needed to go to detox or my wife at the time telling me that I needed to go, it didn't matter. What it was was seeing, seeing the pain in my dad's eyes. Wow. And I was like, all right, I'm going to give this a shot. And, and I, went to, I went to Adcare in Worcester and um, I haven't touched anything mind or mood altering since then. And that was 2007. Good for you. So, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Come on, it is good for you. Well, you know, the congratulatory and the good for you kind of stuff. It's like, this, this is the way that I was put on this planet. Mm -hmm. I was born worried. I'm super sensitive, full of fear, unfounded, mm -hmm. ungrounded fear. I listened to my own thinking. Mm -hmm. And alcohol and maybe drugs, if I had tried it at the time, would have had relieved that to a certain degree. Um, so should, should I really be congratulated or given an attaboy award for basically coming back to the point that I was when I came out of the womb, which is just this, you know, little spazzy kid that can't handle life and was never given the tools. Right? I mean, I, I would, I would like to give you credit for falling no, into I a know, hole I get, and getting I, out I, of I it. Yeah. And I'm definitely, I'm not, I'm definitely not, you know, um, discondoning what you're saying or doing. Mm -hmm. And, but, but to me, it just, any kind of adulation or mm -hmm. stuff just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Makes you uncomfortable, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because we, we talk about, um, you know, when I, when I talk to families, they have this expectation that recovery is going to bring their loved one back to like a hundred percent. And, you know, oftentimes I have to set their expectations to a more realistic level is that, you know, if your loved one does engage in some sort of recovery process, they're going to get back to zero and it's going to bring them back to the same level playing field that everybody else had, except they're going to have to start over from scratch at when they, you know, where they come back from, but they're not coming back to a hundred. They're coming back to zero from underneath zero you right. know, from being behind the eight ball. They're coming <clears throat> back from being, uh, you know, struggling on a daily basis, feeling less than and having, you know, a lack of skill sets to deal with what life throws at them. So, you know, the not only that, but if they stay sober long enough, they might realize that they just actually don't like you. That is true. Yes. I get that. No, <laughs> that just because you love them to get well, doesn't mean that they're going to come back and you're going to like them. Exactly. Yeah. I know a lot of people that got well and I still don't like them. I appreciate everything you did for me, but you're yeah. kind of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, I was, uh, when I was reading up uh, on having you on today, I, I noticed that uh, wow. you are, you, well, it's nothing crazy. Not yet. <laughs> but uh, So uh, that you're also, are you still writing? Um, I, I, occasionally, yeah. I mean, okay. I put out a newsletter once a week. I don't do any of the writing for okay. it. Sometimes, sometimes I'll add my own 
uncalled for opinion to some <laughs> you know it's it's not just a newsletter so could you just talk about a little bit about how to access all the resources that you put together too with that newsletter i mean it's it's really amazing and and not enough people i think know that it exists because so there's there, so much there's, information all in one spot it's it's really it's awesome. okay so so there's um I, I think you're you're uh you're conflating two different things but uh, i'll so the, the newsletter is part of the website. Okay. And the website is recoverybinder.org. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has all of the resources for um, everything involving recovery, right? If I'm not mistaken. Like, like everything. Yeah, pretty much has. How long have you been putting that together and adding to it? Um, I started it when I started here at Partners. Okay. I could go into the history of that if you want to, but. Well, we're going to make sure that link is available to our how, how that how yeah, that started. It's, it's really oh, an awesome resource. Thank you, Maureen. Yeah. And and along with that website, I put out a weekly newsletter, which is current news and um, happenings around recovery. Uh, okay. So and that you can subscribe to that from the website and get the weekly newsletter. And it's it's about weekly. Every once in a while, I pretty much I've been pretty consistent on sending it out weekly, and it's usually got three to four different articles. Um, every week about what's what's happening in in recovery or even legislation, um, any any kind of news that's relevant to 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 this field. Uh, and this would be a good resource for parents, families, anyone, individuals, anyone programs. who's interested in what's going on. Yeah. Okay. Right, um, good. You know, like what's happening with the pharmaceuticals, what's happening mm -hmm. with legislation, what the federal government is doing, what local governments are doing, um, different stories and happenings about recovery communities around the country. I mean, just basically anything that has to do with recovery. Okay. And then every once in a while, if there's a new podcast, I'll throw that in the newsletter too. So, so do you, do you still write for the Huffington post? No, they actually got rid of bloggers. I was a front page featured blogger for a really long time. Um, I started writing mostly around the, um, around the financial crisis mm -hmm. and covered the, we got some construction going on outside. I apologize for that. Not that I have anything to do with it, but I apologize <laughs> anyway because uh, I'm basically I feel sorry for breathing. Yeah. But, um, but, um, so I started writing. I, I was a newspaper reporter in North Carolina for a long time. I covered mm -hmm. cops and schools, and um, and then when the financial crisis hit and uh, I almost lost my home. I started writing about the experience of homeowners during the financial crisis. And this was back in like 2009, that was back in 2008, 2009. Yeah. And I continued to write up until around 2015. Mm -hmm. And for some reason I was consistently featured on the front pages and you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I started writing about politics and, um, and that was when you were on the talk show. I did a, yeah, I did a talk show TNZ talk with mm -hmm. Tony Trippiano. And, um, after the last election, and I'm not going to mention who was elected. Mm -hmm. We kind of looked at each other and said, there is absolutely no way I can talk about this for the next four years. Yeah. And we both, we quit. And actually he had just gotten off of an opioid addiction after, uh, for medical reasons, mm -hmm. um, after talking to me for a while and home detoxed and then ended up going to the hospital because home detox is never a good idea. Mm -hmm. And he actually ended up dying about nine months after we stopped doing the show um, from an unrelated incident and infection and stuff. But yeah, so terrible. Tony Trippiano is no more. That was yeah, that was TNZ talk. Okay, wow. 
Well, I think you made the right choice of getting out of that particular topic. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I, yeah. I'd be drinking again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, it's a good oh, thing you God. got out of that topic. And so now you have... Um, that, guy, that guy could probably make Jesus Christ drink himself. <laughs> <laughs> this no-named politician that was... Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it, it, either state or federal, I don't sure. know. We yeah. have no idea what we're talking about mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Lo- local. <laughs> Whatever. Yep. So, um, and now you have uh, Buds with Suds, which is uh, your Buds podcast. Yep, Suds stands for Substance Use Disorder, obviously. Mm-hmm. So... Um, we have, uh, recovery coaches, um, people like, uh, Maureen was on, mm-hmm. um, CEOs, directors of departments and, um, yeah, just talking about this. And your co-host, I'm going to try to say it right. Steve Lesnikowski. Uh, did I do sure. it? Yeah. Did I do it's, it right? it's, yeah. I really don't have any co-hosts anymore. Oh, uh, okay. All right. Pretty much me and whoever's on. Oh, okay. Uh, which worked out well with the name. So it's just, yeah. uh, it's, it's just any, anyone with suds. Basically. Okay. All right. I like that. Uh, we, do, we do a round table. Steve still participates in the round tables. Okay. Um, but I, um, I, I do, I do want to say this, even though it doesn't really need to be said, um, mm-hmm. nothing really happened except that um, when I start something, basically anything I can be really overbearing and, and kind of a pain to be around. Mm -hmm. So, um, I kind of decided for his sake, (laughs) mine that I would, (laughs) I would, I would, I would do this. And, and he's, he and I work together. Um, he still comes on the podcast. We still do shows together and every once in a while he'll, he'll come on a round table and stuff. And that's um, great though. You know, Rich is a little driven. Yeah, I can, I can be, um, I can be. Little, it sounds close to the word that you're trying to say, but yes, driven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 driven, driven. Let's, let's go with that. We'll stick with driven. Oh, I like that. Well, I mean, it's, it sounds, I like, I mean, obviously I like doing podcasts. I like, like talking about this, this subject. And I know that uh, Maureen and I both have to be very careful, um, you know, talking about this subject because it is, it's almost like politics, you know, it's, it's, you got to be really careful about some of the things that you do say and some of the trends and, you know, some of the directions that people are going in. And, and I will say that as a person in recovery myself, um, you know, having, having used a certain process and, and promoting that process for years on end um, as a way to help people get well, the last few years have been really challenging for me, um, you know, uh, getting, wrapping my head around the fact that there's a, an, overdose epidemic that's taking place at the same time as the substance use epidemic that existed forever anyway. Um, you know, I think, I think it's more, I think it's more prevalent, uh, prevalent today than it ever was. I mean, we have more ways to address um, mental issues right now mm-hmm. and even depression, anxiety, and, and stress. And we're at the highest rate of depression, anxiety, and stress and suicide, um, particularly amongst um, guys my age. Mm. Right? 50 to 70 um, year old men are killing themselves at an alarming rate. And there's a higher rate of depression, anxiety, and stress and alcoholism and addiction than ever before. This entire thing was set up here, particularly at partners to address the opioid epidemic. And I would say about 70% of my referrals are alcohol. And probably half of those are people above the age of 50. Interesting. So yeah, and I have my theories about that, but you mm-hmm. know. well, I mean that's the 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 other piece of this is 
that I think the focus and it's, it's coming out more and more now, but the focus has been so heavy on the opiates that, you know, we forget how many people are actually struggling with alcohol, um, crystal meth, uh, cocaine, all the other things that are in there. Benzos. That, that benzos exactly. Yeah. yeah. Benzos are huge with the younger generation right now, but you know, that, that all of that still exists and the substance itself. I mean, I hate to say it's irrelevant because of all the lives that are lost due to certain substances, but the substance itself is not the problem. It's the pursuit of relief. Like you talked about earlier, we are a, a nation in pursuit of relief from whatever ails us. And you know, whether well, it's a pill, a drink yeah, or a powder right, too, we also, we also live in a society right now that is completely devoid of, um, of communication and love and compassion and, mm. You know, you spend your entire day looking at what other people tell you they're doing with their lives and feeling sorry for yourself mm -hmm. because your life isn't as great as you know, there was an article in the in the New Yorker and I'm not going to get into the whole article, but I think Maureen and I have talked about this, too. There was one sentence in there that struck me because the, the, the author who was writing it was looking at the opioid crisis and he was saying that. You know, uh, societally, we don't have the same things we, we did before. We don't have community stores. Everyone's buying mm -hmm. things on Amazon. We're on Facebook all the time. We're not face-to-face. -face. We're not doing things as a community. Um, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, Brownies, mm -hmm. churches, youth organizations, whatever. We just, we don't have it anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, what he said in that that really struck me was that most people who try opioids for the first time never realize until that point how miserable they've been, right? Mm -hmm. Because because opioids mimic oxytocin, which is also nicknamed the love hormone, right? You get it during communication, during orgasm, during breastfeeding, mm -hmm. um, even through hugs, right? You produce this hormone um, of oxytocin that opioids to a degree mimic, right? And alcohol and other things mask, right? So you can numb yourself, you can you know, make yourself feel better, higher, whatever. Mm -hmm. And we have that all, all available to us, right? But what, what we don't have is um, a community and a tribe and people around us that care for us and that will sit and talk to us. Mm. And that's one of the things that, um, you know, much like pastoral services, it's been pointed out, is we're the one area of the hospital that isn't restrained, doesn't have time restraints. Mm -hmm. right? I can spend 15 minutes with someone or I can spend two hours. Right? That's um, here at Partners, we're non-billable service. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to get approval from insurance. We don't have to bill to insurance. We don't have to prove any kind of quote unquote success through a wellness plan or mm -hmm. through, you know, a step mm -hmm. that someone has achieved or something. Our model is based on um, less ED visits. That's how we prove our viability is less ED visits, more visits to the PCP, probably therapy, maybe groups, mm -hmm. whatever, um, and less cost to healthcare as a whole in, in that respect. Mm -hmm. Richard, I am so glad you're doing what you're doing. I'm mm -hmm. we're really fortunate that you're out there doing this and, and, oh, and talking God. about it. And you're I know, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> that was my goal actually, yeah. <laughs> but I, I really mean it. I mean, you know, you're, he's so funny cause he's so sarcastic and he's so like, but, um, and some of the stuff you said today was really, beautiful and i know mm -hmm. that that's you know hard for you to hear for some reason well i do i do really very true mike said too about um if i if i can remember oh about being careful with what we say and and that you, you say that this talking about this is a lot like uh politics right 
that there are those kind of minefields yeah. that, and, and here's, here's the thing that I think needs to happen, right? Is we need to stop that. Mm. We need to stop being careful. Yeah. We need to stop being cautious. We need to stop focusing on what words we're using mm. and who's offended by what. And I know Maureen, you've got a real problem with the word junkie, but uh, you can read, you can read my article on recoverybinder.org. <laughs> It's all about the, the, the use and the history of the word junkie, okay? And here's the thing. Here's the thing, okay? Because I was, at, I was at the Recovery Coach Commission in Boston, Governor Baker's Recovery Coach Commission, which is run by Mary Lou Sutter, the, the, um, the head of health and human services for the state of Massachusetts, right? And someone used the term relapse. Mm. And someone on the panel got up in arms about how offensive that term is. Mm. And and that we should use the term reoccurrence mm. and whatever. And then 15 other people have another term that they think they should use. And then other people have no problem with the term relapse and other mm -hmm. people have a problem with the, with the term reoccurrence. And we get bogged down in what we're saying and how we're saying it, that we're never really addressing the problem. Yeah. Right? And, and, here's, and here's the thing, and, and Maureen, I'm gonna chastise you very briefly here, because if you listen, if you listen to the episode on, on Buds with Suds, with Tito Rodriguez. He's the yep. coach supervisor for Pari, right? And he refers to himself as an old school dope fiend. Mm. And to some people that might be offensive, right? Now I'm not going to refer to someone as a dope fiend. I'm not going to refer to someone as a junkie, but if they want to refer to themselves that way, mm -hmm. have at it, right? Who well, am I to tell you that you can't use that term for yourself? Mm -hmm. And if it helps you stay and get sober and be in recovery for a little longer than you normally would have, Mm. because that self-degradation is important to you or that term for yourself is important to you because it reminds you of something. Mm -hmm. Who am I to say that, that it offends me? Right. And that we're getting, we're getting stuck on how we're talking about things rather than what we're talking about. Right. That I see as a real problem. Because that, that movement right there, the distraction that's because that's what it is. It's a distraction. Thank you. Um, it's, it's, it's leaking into my office. It's leaking into the social media. It's leaking into everybody's efforts to try to help. And I, I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, I think it's, it's interesting because as we get to the end of this particular podcast, there's like three episodes that just came up that need to be had, which is the language, um, you know, the disconnection in society where the closer we get, the further we are from each other, you know, um, all of these things. And, I actually guess I, I would like to see if you would like to come back on and talk about some of this stuff with us because I enjoy this conversation. It sounds like we, you know, I would like to dig into that one, the language. Um, Maureen and I have this conversation all the time, not even in an opposing perspective, but yeah. just more so what's the, what, why are we talking so much about that yeah. instead of what needs to be done about it? But, I, I may not be the best person for that particular episode only because, I mean, here's the thing, right? I spent, I spent a good part of my life writing. Mm -hmm. I, I've, I've written professionally, I've written publicly. I spent a lot of time parsing my words and choosing my words very carefully, believe mm -hmm. it or not. Right? Yeah. And, um, and I don't care. Mm -hmm. I, I don't care what words you use. Right. I don't, I don't, I really don't, you know, well, it's, it's, I, I care more about the action, obviously. Like, what are you yeah, doing? About as long this? as we're addressing the issue. Yeah. Use, and use we're Use and we're not. Yeah, I know. I agree with you there. I think that there had to be some discussion about mm -hmm. language, but I think as usual, we've gone too far in the other direction. Now that's all we're talking. We're doing a lot of talking about that, not enough action. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's like trying to address stigma too, right? These stigma campaigns that organizations are running, right? 
it doesn't look like anyone at the table running these anti-stigma campaigns is someone in recovery. Right. Because well, that's, so this is our language. So I'm in recovery. I get to call myself whatever I want. I yes. get to identify as whatever I want. And I say these words because these are what other people like me identify as. So it, it brings us together. It's what it, it's when we sit in a room and we're like, I'm an addict. And we all say that we all know what that means. It's a word we can all wrap our heads around. Uh, if I call myself a junkie, my fellow junkies know what I'm talking about, whatever, whatever it is. It's like, those are our words. And you know, I think what we've fallen back on, and Maureen and I have kind of come to just an agreement about this particular. We've agreed to uh, disagree about it, but that you know, it's our language and we can use it. You know, to your point, Richard. But professionally, you know, staff, nursing staff, doctors, yeah. and stuff like that shouldn't be using that. And Agreed. more importantly, that it shouldn't be echoing in their head, even if they're not saying it out loud. You know, as a society, yeah. I think we've gotten to the point where people just think that they think junky, they think this, they think that, and. If we could get them to stop thinking it, that would be great. But I don't but think we need to is, fight the, thing, the language. But, but the problem with a lot of these anti-stigma campaigns, too, is that they're not really addressing the real issue, mm. right? It's like you're not going to – so here's the thing is if you're calling someone a junkie and I tell you you shouldn't be calling them a junkie, you should be calling them someone with a substance use disorder, mm -hmm. right? The intent behind calling them someone a person with a substance use disorder if your attitude hasn't changed, the intent is still to call them a junkie. That's what I'm saying. It's what's right? in their head. So, so changing your words isn't going to do anything, right? Mm -hmm. what, what's missing is that we seem to have forgotten to look at another human being who is suffering as another human being who is suffering. That's, that's where we've come a long way from. Right. So it's like a chicken or an egg thing. Like, do you, do you change the way you talk about them first or change the way that you think about them first? I don't think it matters. I don't think, I don't think you can, un, until you can understand that you're dealing with another human being who is suffering. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that's all it is. Well, I guess what I meant is that we'd have to reconnect as a society and people would have to see people like people again first. Right. in order to treat them like people. So that's right. what I'm saying. Like, do, is it just by, do we change by talking about it differently? Does that make people reconnect? Or is it a bigger, uh, much larger kind of systemic problem where people just don't see people like people anymore? We're all desensitized. I mean. I think that <laughs> language, I do think language is powerful and that there has to be a little of both. Maybe it's gone too far in the other direction, but I do think that there has to be, there has to be certain things that are just not okay. I'm going to agree with you, but I'm going to blow past it. Do it. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> because because here's the thing, right? I've I've spent 12 years in in recovery and in AA and going to all different kinds of meetings. And I have talked to and sat with and listened to people and hung out with people outside of the meeting, or you know, I can even tell you my sponsor is like this little 75-year-old guy who owns two Harley Davidsons. He was part of the 81 supporter for the Hells Angels. Um, he has Nazi tattoos. Uh, he comes off as a bigot, misogynist, and a racist, and Fox News watching, gun-toting. Mm. But he's one of the most compassionate people I've ever met in my life, right? And I, I'm serious, right? He's helped me through some really dark times. And I have met people that I otherwise would never have talked to would never have communicated, would have avoided like the plague, would have crossed the street if I saw them coming the other way. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think what the recovery coaches are, are effectuating is that human connection. Mm 
mm-hmm. right? And other people are seeing that happen. And when they see more of us coming into the ED and into facilities and into primary care facilities, they're remembering that because somewhere that touched them, right? So we can change the language all we want. And I do agree with you, Maureen, to, to a degree. And you and I have had, you know, mm-hmm. many conversations about this. But when when people see that human connection and that kindness and that compassion actually work, yes, right? It, it flows through the rest of the organization, okay. right? And when you have people that can articulate that, that can talk about it intelligently without getting all up in arms and offended about the term you use, because now right there immediately you're putting someone on guard and they feel like they've done something wrong and, mm-hmm. the, and the communication and the conversation ends at that point. Right. And that's why I blow past things like that. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't like talking about things like that because, mm-hmm. because it misses the larger picture. Mm-hmm. Right. And when I can sit in a room with, with, and, and with doctors and clinicians and very nicely tell them that they don't, they have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And not that I'm an expert or anything because I'm certainly not. Right. Well, I mean, we should be bringing information from the ground up. Right. right to help the people right. who are treating these folks understand right. what these but, folks actually are. You've lived but, it. But, you have, but you yeah, the only the only way the only way we can change this is by showing them that it can be changed. Mm-hmm. Right, that's that's the only thing that's going to work. Well, I'm glad you're out there doing that, and Me I too. hope that more people do it. And um, I Definitely guess have uh, to have you back. Oh yes. Yeah. All right. I would like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode of Collateral Damage. As always, if you'd like to find out all of the different ways that you can listen to and subscribe to our podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.cdpodcast.com. There are many different ways to listen, download, and subscribe, so we encourage you to choose the one that is most appropriate for you. And as always, we would encourage our listeners to get informed and stay connected. Thank you for joining us.